go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to uh, 1 John chapter 4, where I want to return in our study through 1 John. And last week we began looking at a passage that deals specifically with the love of God, and that's something that the Apostle John has written quite a bit about uh, in these five chapters of his letter. But 1 John chapter 4, uh, beginning with verse number 7, uh, going through verse number 12, Uh, Let's read together. The Bible says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. I want to continue preaching from this subject, which I introduced last week, love so amazing, so divine. And you'll recognize that phrase from the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And the hymn writer, upon contemplating the love of God, taking in the love of God, imagining the love of God, seeing it as it's on display at the cross of Jesus, this is something which he said is love so amazing, so divine, that it literally demands everything that I have. And so this is what the Apostle John is describing here in this passage of Scripture. It's a powerful explanation of divine love. And we considered a couple of things already. Uh, To begin with, we noticed the majesty of divine love. And that's something that is stated in verses 7 and 8. John is emphasizing the fact that believers ought to love one another. But before he makes his case about what that means, uh, he wants us to know that it's it's all about the love of God in us that we possess as believers. That is, because God is love and God has loved us in a certain way, then we as the people of God ought to reflect the same love with which we've been loved by God. In other words, the way God has loved me Uh, This is the way that I'm to love my brother and my sister. And so that's the point that John is making here in the passage. So it's almost as if we've scaled the majestic heights, almost like a mountain peak of divine love, as the apostle is describing the majesty of divine love. And then second, he describes the measure of divine love. He takes us all the way to the cross in verses 9 and 10. If you want to know what the love of God looks like, uh, here's how it was made manifest among us. Here's how it was made visible. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And Jesus was love incarnate, and he came with a rescue mission in mind, and he came to live for the purpose of dying in our place as our atoning sacrifice. And that's the word propitiation there in verse 10 that the apostle uses. It describes a sacrifice uh, which turns away divine wrath. And that's why Jesus came. 
And so when you take all of this in, you can see how this love demands literally my soul, my life, and my all. Now, that's the mountain peak of majestic, divine love. But lest we stay there on top of the mountain, John is going to bring us back into the reality of the present. The love of God is an amazing thing for us to sing about. It's an amazing thing for us to contemplate. But if it does not result in action in my life, then all such contemplation is in vain. And so it leads us to live our lives in a certain way. And that's what John gets to in verses 11 and 12. Uh, In verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, as in the way that I've just described it, if God has so loved us in this way, then we also ought to love one another. (laughs) And so in just the space of a few short words, he brings us from the mountaintop of glory to the plane of everyday living. It'd be easy to want to stay on the mountaintop, but God has something in mind for our lives that happens as we live out our everyday experience interacting with people in our lives. You know, love doesn't build three tabernacles on the mountaintop. It's what Peter wanted to do on the mountaintop of transfiguration when Jesus, he saw a picture, he saw Jesus transfigured and said, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let's just build three tabernacles and stay here on the mountaintop. But, but God has something else in mind for his people. You know, the thing is, you apply that to your life, it'd be easy for us to want to live on the mountaintop of majesty and contemplate divine truth. But see, folks, where the rubber meets the road, it's on Monday morning when we're living our lives and interacting with the people in our lives. And what we know about the love of God and what we've come to experience in the love of God ought to be expressed through action in our lives toward other people in our lives. And that's what John is saying here in this passage of Scripture. And so his point of emphasis is that the love of God ought to be true of our relationships with one another in the family of God. And that's a word that he uses there in verse 11. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so there's, there's uh, obligation here. That word ought It's a word that maybe has fallen on hard times in our day. It's a word that conveys a sense of obligation to something. And let's just be honest, we're living in a time when nobody really wants to be obligated to anything. We all want to do what we want to do. And and don't come along and use words like obligation and ought because that just sounds too repressive to me. (laughs) You know, to a lot of people, it's a concept that infringes upon their personal autonomy And they operate under this mindset that freedom uh, means that I should be under no obligation uh, whatsoever. But the fact of the matter is that freedom always comes with its own obligations. You know, does freedom mean that one is above the law? Well, Chief Schultz would tell us absolutely not. Freedom does not mean that one is above the law. We know the answer is no. But even within a free society... Men and women have legal and moral obligation. We know that, okay? Uh, Freedom has to always be responsible. Now, you apply this to your life spiritually. We've been made free in Jesus Christ. Whom the Son has set free, he is free indeed. But our freedom in Christ is certainly not a license for us to live irresponsibly outside the bounds of God's moral designs for humanity, all right? So it's only through 
uh, freedom in Christ that I'm able to obey. And it's only through freedom in Christ that I'm able to love. Why? Well, because of the indwelling life of God in me now as a believer and as a child of God. My Father has given me His nature. And so now, uh, here's, here's the thing. As a Christian, I, I've been given a brand new heart that delights to obey, that delights to love, and this eagerness to obey my Father is going to show up through my willingness to love my brother and go the extra mile for my sister. So love is both an obligation and a delight for those who truly know God. And that's something that the apostle has emphasized all throughout his letter. And love for my brother, this is something that serves as evidence that I've come to know and experience the love of God myself. In fact, John will say this down in verse number 20. He says, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So in effect, John is saying, so you say you love God. Well, prove it. How do you prove it? Well, we prove our love for God by loving our brothers and sisters in his family. And so John is going to get very practical here and really throughout the remainder of the letter as he's delving into this very messy subject of relationships. And I say that's a messy subject because relationships involve people and people are sinful by nature and all of us are in a mess one way or another. And so if we're honest, we're we're all terrible when it comes to this business of loving one another the way that God in Christ has so loved us. Now, you may not feel like you are, but let me tell you, you are. <laughs> we, we are because there's, there's a part of us that just, we just love ourselves if we just would be honest about it. And so this business of sanctification means that God is doing something in my life. He's stripping me of pride and ego, and he's overwhelming me with the truth of who he is and how he's loved me in Christ. And he's molding me, shaping me into the image of Christ as I reflect his love in my relationships with others in my life. So what we've got here in this passage then, if you've got the majesty of divine love and then the measure of divine love, in verses 11 and 12, John deals with the motive of divine love. The motive. If God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. And so what's our motive? Well, our motive for loving one another in the family is the love of God. And if we've experienced the love of God, we have great incentive to love one another in the family. All right, so notice a few things about this. Notice, first of all, how it's logically reasonable. This is logically reasonable. If God so loved us, in other words, our love is patterned after something. It's based upon something. And and this refers right back to what John has already explained in those previous verses. How has God so loved us? Well, he's done so through the love gift of his own son. And it's what he has done for us in Christ that ultimately reveals his love. And so John is saying that the love of God is something that we should never have to question. It's something that should never be doubted in our lives because the love of God is something that's been made manifest. It's been made visible by the Son of God. God sent His one and only Son into our broken world so that you and I might live through Him. 
the embodied love of God came with this mission. He came with this redemptive purpose. It's summed up in that word propitiation or atoning sacrifice, which means the cross was not simply an example of love in the sense that Jesus died as a supreme martyr. No, it means that his death is the one and only way that God's wrath upon my sin could be turned away, could be satisfied. So my sin, it's not something that God has merely overlooked. No, the debt has been paid through the atoning death of Jesus Christ in my place. And it's the love of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son who came with this mission in mind. And the apostle Paul deals with this subject in Romans chapter five. Uh, He says, while we were still weak, when we were still sinners, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't into a world of perfect and righteous people that God sent his son because we were so lovable. No, he sent his son into this world of rebellious, sinful humanity who took what he had given us as means of his common grace and we we used it on ourselves. In our sin, in our ego, in our arrogance, we've gone our own way. We've lived for ourselves. We've not been seeking after God. The creature has turned in rebellion toward the creator. And yet, in spite of that, God has so loved this world that he sent his son. And that's a type of love that ought to absolutely overwhelm you when you think about the depth of giving. It's a selfless giving. God has so loved us that he gave until it hurt And true love is always sacrificial and giving. It's not a a meet me halfway kind of approach. No, this is love that goes the whole way. It goes the distance. It pays the whole bill. And so this is logically reasonable then. This motive of divine love, we ought to love one another when we consider the fact that God has so loved us in this manner. And so it's logically reasonable. But then notice something else. John says that it's personally responsible. It's personally responsible. You want to know what love is? Well, come to Jesus, who's the living embodiment of perfect love. And that's what John has explained in verses 9 and 10. And it would be easier for us to camp out there instead of coming to this business of loving one another, which he brings up in verse number 11. But this is truth that has to be applied rather than truth that's simply appreciated. I wonder how often we simply appreciate truth, but we just fail when it comes to applying the truth. If you truly appreciate and love the fact and worship God over the fact that he has so loved you in Jesus Christ, then how might this be applied to your life as a believer? Well, it'll show up through personal responsibility. It'll show up through the way that you love your brother and your sister. And that's what John is saying here in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, We ought to love one another. It's the language of personal responsibility and accountability. So this will show up in my life. Uh, If if I so love God and I understand something about the love of God, how is it going to show up in my life? Well, it's going to show up practically in my relationships with others in the family. So John has defined love before he demands love from us, but... Make no mistake about it. He's not letting us off the hook here. We have no other option. We must love one another in the family of faith. 
And this is the love that goes the distance. It's the divine love, the agape love of God that's to show up in my life and your life and in our relationships with one another. Now notice that phrase there, one another. He uses a, a plural pronoun here that's reciprocal, which means he's referring to members of the family. So we know that 1 John is written to believers and so he's referring to others in the family of God. It's a command to be applied to members of the church. Yes, it's true we're to love our fellow humanity. Yes, it's true we're to love even those that do not know and love and worship our God. And there's an application there, certainly. But the emphasis here is for Christians to be rightly related to one another in the same fellowship. And it's not simply for our own personal benefit, but it's because of the collective witness that the local church is to have upon the unbelieving world. There's to be something characteristic of our relationships with one another in the family of God that causes the world around us that doesn't know our God to take note, that gets their attention. They wonder, why is it that you people love each other the way that you love each other? What is it that's different about you and your relationships. And that then becomes an opportunity for witness, for witness. So John's getting down to the basics here. He's very practical. And he's reminding us that Christianity, this is not a solo venture. God doesn't intend for my faith to be lived out in isolation from other people. But the gospel brings me into the same family, the local expression of the body of Christ. Now, you know that the church is not so much an event that you attend. It's a family to which you belong. And within every family, there are responsibilities. And we're Christian men and women, and our citizenship ultimately is in heaven. That means we're pilgrims and we're strangers in this world. We're not alone in this, but there are other brothers and sisters in this family of faith. We've been brought into the same fellowship, and we're doing life together and folks, let's just be honest, that's not always an easy thing. There are some in the family whose personality traits and whose interests are different than mine. And there are some within the family who inevitably will have different opinions than I have when it comes to certain issues. They'll have different preferences and different tastes and likes and dislikes that's different from me. Some people like dogs and other people like cats. And some people like the Tar Heels, and some people like that other team in Raleigh. I forget the name of it. Uh, I think it's NC State. But we're just different. The family's different. And the closer often that we get to one another and, and live life together, the more likely it's going to happen that we say things and we do things that hurt and offend one another and the issue is this, what do we do when other people in our lives, in particular within the family of faith, when other people seem to be irritable or problematic, when they irritate us? Well, John's telling me what my attitude ought to be here. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. 
which means we don't act like the rest of the world and give in to natural instinct. I've got to remind myself of who I am in Jesus and who my brother, my sister is in Jesus. And I'm to take what I know to be true and, and what I believe, and I'm to apply it to the relationship. And I don't wait until I feel like loving the other person with whom I may be at odds. No, I have responsibility, personal responsibility in this matter. And I'm to love since I have been loved by Christ. And notice this is, we're commanded to love. The Bible commands Christians to love. And that's something that the world can't understand simply because the world only associates love with an emotion or a feeling. But the Bible says that love is an act of the will. And where Christians are commanded to love, God's commands are also his enablements. God has never commanded you to do something that he's not also given you the power with which to do it. And that's what the Christian life is. It's Jesus Christ living in me who's come to take up residence by means of his spirit who's made me his temple and his home. And the love of God has been poured out in my heart and in my life, which means I am never without resources when it comes to loving the people in my life. You say, I don't feel like it. Well, it's not about a feeling. It's about faith. And even if you don't feel like it, you obey because this is an issue of faith. And it all begins by reminding myself, if God so loved us, then I ought to love my brother and my sister. Great preacher, British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said something about this passage he said, the first thing that I do when often I feel irritated and disturbed and bewildered and perhaps antagonistic towards someone else, he says, it's to look at myself. And that's half the battle. We all know perfectly well from experience that in this kind of problem, the whole difficulty is that we're always looking at the other person and never at ourselves. But if I start with myself... If God so loved me, what is it that I find? Usually I instinctively feel that I'm being wronged. I'm not being dealt with fairly. I feel like it's the other person who's difficult. And if only this other person could somehow change, then there would be no difficulty. All would be well, and we'll live happily ever after. Hold up, says the gospel. Stop for a moment and look at yourself of exactly who you are. And this gospel brings us immediately face-to-face -face with this self that is in us, which is the cause of all these troubles. If the other person would change, if the other person would budge, if the other person would do this, if the other person would do that, then things would be okay in the relationship. And that's never the basis or the motive for divine love, is it? How has God loved me when I was so unlovable and in rebellion? God has so demonstrated his love for me when I was going my own way. Jesus Christ sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. You go back up to verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for us. He went the distance. And my love for my brother and my sister needs to be the type of love that also goes the distance. And Jesus said it this way in John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this than to lay down his life 
for his friends. And that's exactly what he did through laying down his life on the cross for us. But the love that we have for one another is to be patterned after the way that he's loved us. And there's something about us that doesn't want to lay down our lives for anybody. We want to take up our lives. We want to hold on to our lives. We want to gain. We want to receive. And divine love, agape love, is totally different. It's self-giving. It lays down its life. I've heard it defined in this way. Love is an orientation toward others for their glory and for their good. To say that I love God, that means I'm concerned for his glory above everything else. There's nobody else above him in my life. He's foremost in my thoughts. I only want what he wants because it's good. And having said that, to love someone else as a Christian means that I'm concerned for their well-being above my own. I have their good in mind, even placing it above what I want for myself. And it's in this way that I lay down my life for my friends. And you remember, just this is what Jesus said when he was asked what the greatest commandment is. He responded by saying that it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I'm convinced we all love ourselves. But I'm not so convinced that we all love each other to the same degree. And the reason is that sinful nature is still there. And that it wants to assert itself through self-will, self-love, self-centeredness, self-pity. And we retreat into ourselves when we don't get what we want. At some level, we all want to be the center of the universe. And when that kind of thinking is ruling the day in my life or your life, you're going to be a miserable person. Because the world doesn't revolve around me, and the world doesn't revolve around you. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the glory of God. It's not about me. It's all about him, and it's about my brother, and it's about my sister. And if we had that level of thinking and that kind of mentality, can you imagine how different the atmosphere of the church would be? You want to know what that kind of love looks like? Well, look at the story of the Good Samaritan. Love for my neighbor, what does it do? It goes the distance. It gives and it gives and it gives and it does not think of re receiving something in return. This is the way that love ought to be manifest in my life and your life as believers. And you say, man, that's hard. Well, that's not hard. It's impossible. If you think it's hard, then you've not yet come to complete dependence upon God in your life. But if you think it's impossible, well, now you're tracking because it is impossible. And it's only as you recognize the fact that loving this way is impossible. Well, right there is the first step to recognizing and opening yourself up to being filled with the Spirit of God in your life. <laughs> you think about how this applies to your marriage and you think about how this applies to all of your relationships and how you serve and your involvement in the body of Christ and now I think about a lot of people who used to serve and do a lot of different things, but somewhere along the way they got offended, they got hurt. Maybe somebody said something, somebody did something that offended them. They didn't like a particular decision that was made. And there was some type of hurt there that began to be nursed in their heart. 
and it began to fuel a sense of bitterness. And before you know it, they've completely withdrawn from fellowship with anybody and everybody while pointing fingers at everybody else. The first step to freedom in your life is to hit your knees in repentance and cry out to God in dependence and say, Lord, you know I've been hurt. You know I've been wounded. But I believe that you so loved me in Christ that you gave your son to die for me and you'll empower me to love other people in my life the same way. And that's what the church is, folks. And that's what the church is. And I'm telling you, we begin loving one another that way. Our community around us will take note. And it won't matter what a person's skin color is. And it won't matter what their socioeconomic status is. Boy, God will go to work. God will begin working. God, what's an evidence of revival in the church? It's the presence of divine love, which rules and dominates the atmosphere. And oftentimes... We are so caught up with what a person is doing, we can't see a person beyond what that person is doing. And sometimes we forget the fact that that person who's doing is, is a soul. And love looks beyond what a person is doing, be it right or wrong, and loves them anyway, and goes the distance. And, and see, that kind of love has a transforming impact on a person. It's the kind of transforming love that the love of God has had on me in my life. When I was a sinner, when I was on my way to hell, when I was deserving of the wrath of God, he loved me anyway. And, he, and, and listen, he didn't wait until I changed before he loved me. He loved me, and it was a love that affected change in my life. That, that's gospel love. That's agape love. I'm telling you, this, this hits home, doesn't it? I mean, it really hits home to where I'm living my life and where you're living your life. And love involves certain feelings we call love. We, we refer to these as affections. And we say, well, I don't have affections toward this particular person and that kind of thing. Well, you know, our affections, our emotions fluctuate. I feel one thing toward my wife and my children that I may not necessarily feel to the same degree with anyone else in my life. And yet, what do you do whenever those affections become riddled with other emotions? When you become hurt, when you become angry by the actions of someone else, does that mean that I stop loving that person simply because I feel something differently now toward that person? Because of what that person has done? Now, the world often says yes. And this is why the world uses this language of falling in love and falling out of love. Because it only associates love with feelings of affection. You know, that's why you can sing the song. You've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that love and feel. And now it's gone. Never to be recovered. Well, when loving feelings are hard to come by, the fact of the matter is that's when real love kicks in. That's when the love of God kicks in. And, and our definition of love always has to transcend our feelings because it's reflective of the unchanging, immovable, immutable, unchangeable God who's never, he's not moved or changed by feelings. You feel like you're out of love for someone and you've lost affections that perhaps you once had, then listen, you need to run to the source of real love and let him fill up your tank. Because it's an endless supply, and he'll fill up your tank. 
So, so this motive of divine love, it's personally responsible, logically reasonable. One last thing I'll leave you with is this. Verse 12, it's spiritually relatable. John says in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So there's a sense in which the way that we love one another in the family of God, this provides a tangible, visible expression of the way that God has loved us. It takes that which is unseen and it makes it seen. I mean, nobody's seen the invisible God. But if God is love and and he's the one who defines that, The love then that we have for one another in the family of God as those who possess his nature, this then gives a witness to the world. It's what Francis Schaeffer referred to as the final apologetic. Schaeffer said, let's be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers, but after we've done our best to communicate to a lost world, we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. That is, we're not going to win the world by our arguments. As much as we need to use logic and apologetics and defend the faith, And as important as that is, we declare the faith and we're clear about the propositional truths of the gospel. Schaefer said, the final apologetic, Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's something that the world can't explain. And it's evidence of the supernatural and the transcendent. And as people who do not know our God and don't worship our God, they observe the love that we have for each other. It takes that which is invisible and makes it visible. And and notice John says that God's doing something in us through this process. We love one another. God abides in us. Now look at this. And his love is perfected in us. That word perfected there carries this idea of completion. To bring something toward a desired goal. What is it that God is doing? Well, he's making me more like his son. (laughs) He's perfecting his love in me and in you. This selfless, self-giving, this love without any thought of receiving something in return. As I practice this, as I surrender to this in my life, God's going to do something in my life as a believer. He's going to conform me more and more and more into the image of his own son, Jesus. And that's the goal of the Christian life, isn't it? Well, our time is gone. Some of you may remember a country song from the early 1990s by Travis Tritt, deep theologian, you know. But the name of the song, I mean, something something like Anymore, And I remember the music video that went along with this song. And there's actually a series of songs, I think, that he he released. And it was about a veteran who had been wounded, handicapped as a result of combat, was left paralyzed from the waist down. But basically, in the video, this veteran, he was having a hard time coming to grips with the fact that his wife would love him the same way now that he couldn't stand on his own. And he feared that he would be an unnecessary burden, would not be loved by her anymore. 
And so he's there, he's gone through rehab, he's not called her, he's not talked to her, he's, he's, he's maintained distance, but he finally works up the courage to call her. He's in a wheelchair when she arrives, only to embrace him the same as before. And I think that sort of just kind of taps into this fear that all of us have deep down. Our deepest fear is that sooner or later, people are going to discover our weaknesses and they're not going to love us the same anymore. And that kind of fear often causes us to want to put up walls, especially in the family of God. We feel like we come to church and we've got to have it all together. You don't know what I've been through this week. You don't know what I've experienced this week. You don't know the failures, the things I've said, and the attitudes that I've had this week. You, you don't know what, I've, what a mess it's oftentimes because they have this idea that they have to put up this mask and put up this facade and put up this wall when they come to church. A lot of times people just withdraw altogether. But folks, let me tell you something. The love of God that loves people and goes the distance with people, and if we're thinking about others, we, we, we love them despite their weaknesses and despite their flaws and despite their failures. doesn't mean that we, we turn a blind eye on sin and that kind of thing or redefine sin. And don't speak the truth. But you know what? It means we love people anyway. And we love them. And we love them. And we love them. And we recognize that the love of God is something that absolutely is transformative. Let's stand for prayer this morning. There's a reason that Christ died with open arms. You know, think about the lyrics say something along these lines, I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. I'm accepted because he was condemned. I'm alive and well and his spirit is within me because he died and rose again. And this is amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? It's amazing love. I know it's true. And it's my joy to honor you in all I do. I honor you. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And God, when it comes to this business of loving others in our lives, oh God, all of us are in such need of grace. And Lord, you've not left us alone in this endeavor. But Lord, you're here to empower us to love, to forgive, to serve, to go the distance in our relationships, to not make life all about us and try to be the center of the universe, but to recognize, Lord, it's all about you and it's all about the glory of Jesus. And in light of all that Christ has done for us, Lord, may we love one another in the family. If there's any person this morning, Lord, that doesn't know you, God, I pray that today they turn from their sin, believe the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection, commit their life to Christ. Is there anybody that needs to get right with somebody else, Lord? Lord, give them the grace and the courage to do that. For Jesus' sake, amen.